you guys wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's Word, 1 Peter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 19. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and read 12 and 13, what we looked at last week, because it's all one section. 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. You guys can be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to You desiring to hear from You, from Your Word. Lord, I pray that You will help me to clearly communicate Your Word to Your people, Father. And I just ask that You would bless each one in here, Father. In Christ's name, Amen. So, really by way of introduction, we're just going to just real briefly talk about the verses we looked at last week. Because um, like I said, I was going to just preach this whole section together. And if you guys remember last week in verse 12 and 13, uh, I believe the title of the message was The Expectation of Suffering. And that was, really the, that was really the main point, that we should expect it. That we should expect suffering. The phrase, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. That's, that's what that was indicating, that we should expect suffering as a Christian. Opposition from the world uh, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we looked at that. We, we talked about not only should we expect it, but we shouldn't think it's a strange thing when it happens. And they kind of go hand in hand. You know, don't think you're the only one going through it because it, the Word says it's going to happen. And then lastly, we looked at not only should we expect it, not only should we not think that it's a strange thing, but we should rejoice in it. And so, we need to rejoice in this suffering knowing that God is refining us. And we'll talk about that more today. But He is refining us. And then, you know, last week, towards the end, we talked about the word, or, or the, or the verse thirteen, was telling us to keep on rejoicing in this life, and and then and then that one day when we would rejoice with great exultation, when we see him face to face, and again it's 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 one section, so Peter continues his thought in verse fourteen. Um, if you take notes, I have four points today. Um, the first one is in verse fourteen, and it's this. Christ is present in your suffering. Christ is present in your suffering. And it's, it, and it's key, it's so important that we understand that when we're going through it. So 
So verse 14, it says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, that's what the NAS says, your Bible may say reproached or insulted. And, and that, is the, that is the meaning of this phrase, this word. It's to denounce or heap insults upon. So if you are reviled, if you have insults heaped upon you, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed. I'm going to just read the verse again. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This reviling that it's talking about in verse 14 is what verse 12 meant by the fiery ordeal that we talked about last week. This is the fiery ordeal. It's the, it's the pushback from the world. It's the, the persecution, the, the insults, the reviling, the reproaches. So this is describing what he was talking about in verse 12 by the fiery ordeal. And, and, and this is what we're not to be surprised when happens that we talked about last week. We're not to be shocked when we're reviled, when we're, when we're put down, when we're insulted because of our faith, because of the Gospel. And again, God is using this reviling, okay? He's, he's using... Whenever you're insulted for Christ, whenever you're reviled for Christ, by way of reminder from what we looked at last week, He is using it for your testing, okay? He's purifying us during these times. And so the next question we ask ourselves, why are we being reviled? Still in verse, in verse 14. Why are we being reviled? And He tells us, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, okay? For the name of Christ. That's the context. When we're reviled for the name of Christ, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, right? So, so this phrase, for the name of Christ, guys, it's, it's for, for bearing the name Christian. Identifying yourself as a Christian. For believing in Him. For professing His name. For the sake of His Gospel. All of these things, all of these phrases are a different way of saying for the name of Christ. But we've got to remember, guys, we've got to remember what Christ said from the very beginning in His ministry, this is part of following Christ. He made it clear. He would make it clear to the crowds that would follow Him for the bread, for the miracles, for the healings, and He would make this clear and most of the people would depart. But for example, in Mark 8, 8 verse 35 Christ says this for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it you hear that it's more of that language this is what you need to expect if you want to identify yourself with me for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it in other words a person that desires to save his life in this life the idea of you're, you just can't let go of your reputation. You just you refuse to follow Christ because of the reputation you might have. This, this whole idea of saving one's life in this world. But he says, whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. In other words, whoever's willing to deny yourself, to deny your rights, to deny your reputation, and be identified with me, in the end, you'll save it. Christ will save it. And so we've got to understand, guys, what is He saying in that verse? We're, we are not going to be loved by this world. 
You're not going to be loved by this present world, this present evil world, this present evil age. We're not going to be loved when we identify with Christ as a a whole. doesn't mean every person is going to hate you, okay? Hope you understand that. But when we are reviled, okay? When we are reviled, it says, Peter says, we are blessed. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And this blessing, guys, is a present blessing. This is not some blessing we're, we're waiting for in the future. This is a present blessing during the time of suffering. Peter no doubt would have thought of the Lord's words in the, on the, in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5.11 where Christ says this, Blessed are you, again that same word, happy. Happy, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a joy that's not based on circumstance. But the word means happy. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Have you guys ever had that happen to you? Yet, have you been treated like that because of Christ? Well, just know this. Christ promises that blessed are you when people insult you. When they malign you. When they, when they slander your name because of Christ. Not because of some sinful behavior in our part, which we're going to look at in a minute, but because of Christ. And why are we blessed? That's the next question in this verse. Why are we blessed? He tells us, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Because Christ is present in your suffering. Beloved, that's why we're blessed. Because Christ is present in your suffering. I chose that word Christ because many times the Holy Spirit is referred to the Spirit of Christ. Okay, So whether you want to say the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, I chose the Spirit of Christ. Christ is present in your suffering. The Spirit of the glory of God. Just the idea of the, the glorious Spirit of God. There's different ways to say this. But that word rest, that's where we really see what, what that phrase means and, and how it is that we are, that we are blessed during, during persecution. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Rests upon you. The idea is that that word it means to give rest, to give relief, to refresh. It gives you the ability to to keep quiet and remain calm and have a patient expectation. I really like that last phrase. That you, can, that you can endure persecution from the world, you can endure reviling and reproaches and remain calm and have a, and have a freshness about you and a patient expectation. What is that patient expectation of? It's that day. That day that we looked at in verse 13 last week, the, at the revelation of His glory, the appearance of Christ. And again, that can be when He comes to us or we go to Him. But it's that day that we have that expect, expectation that helps us to endure this temporary suffering and the insults. You know, I thought of maybe, uh, maybe there being a a kid at school or a kid in the neighborhood. Children, if you're listening. And maybe, maybe there's, a, maybe there's a, a young child and there's a group of bullies, right? And they're picking on this kid. But somehow this kid knows 
that His Father's on the way. His Father's on the way to deal with them. He knows His Dad's coming. His Dad's going to deal with these boys in just a few moments. And not only is He going to deal with them, then He's going to take them in His arms. And He's going to be protected. In other words, my Dad's coming. I've got an expectation. And it gives Him a little bit of joy even in the midst of suffering. And so that's the idea. It's this expectation of God and, the, and this rest that the Spirit gives us. This calmness is what it is. It's a calmness. You ever seen somebody like that just suffering and they just remain calm? It's that Spirit of God. You know, I thought of Stephen. When we think about Stephen in Acts, in Acts chapter 6, you don't have to turn there. But Acts chapter 6, verse 15. This was amidst false accusations before the council. Um, and so this is he, he had preached a message before the before the Jews, the leaders of the Jews. And before that happened, it said, says this, and fixing their gaze upon him, the leaders of Israel, it says, and fixing their gaze upon him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. This calmness, this this it's the Spirit of God that was resting upon him. And then we read, if you if you go to the next chapter, Acts 7, verse 60, this is, this is after he had preached a very strong and powerful message to these men. Basically, you crucified him. And so this is after being stoned. We see what, what we're going to see is he died in the exact same way. After being stoned, it said, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. Do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. So what a beautiful illustration of the Spirit of the glory of God resting upon Stephen and him being able to remain calm, being able to remain... Uh, the, the Spirit of God enabling him to love his enemies right at the very end, to pray for them at the very end. That's what this phrase means, guys. That's why we're blessed. It's a supernatural thing. It's hard to even describe I've told you guys, I know what it feels like, but it's really hard to describe. So that's, but that, that word, I think, looking at that word rest, help us to understand. It's that abiding Spirit that supernaturally helps us. It, it, the Spirit comforts our souls during the times of persecution and gives us strength. Think about the strength Stephen showed. Being able to be stoned to death. And remain calm and love his enemies. Pray for his enemies. So it's, it gives us, it, the Spirit gives us the strength to endure. Because when we think about it, guys, all of the reproaches, they're actually falling upon Christ, upon Christ in us, upon the Spirit in us. I, I, I would probably think that Peter got the language because we see the same language in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Where it says, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. Talking about the Messiah. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Anytime somebody maybe compliments you, beloved for your faith, maybe somebody witnesses you, maybe be bold in a situation... Don't take the credit, okay? It's the Spirit of God that enables us during those times to be bold for, for people who's normally 
maybe timid. The Spirit of God enables us in these things. Um, And Peter is in no doubt with this Scripture in mind is telling his readers, telling us that this promise, this promise that we just read about in Isaiah, this promise that we're reading about here in Peter is extended. It's extended to all who suffer for His name. And so just like we talked about, we should expect suffering. Guys, I think in the same way, we should expect to be blessed when we suffer in the name of Christ. We should expect it. Expect that the Holy Spirit is going to comfort you during that time. He's going to enable you during that time. I believe that's the only way you can explain how you can witness Christians being calm while they're burned at the stake. While their heads are chopped off and they remain calm and even a witness to their, to their executioners. I think it's this very thing we're looking at. And then lastly, that last word, uh, or, or that word, the Spirit of glory, just that it's the idea of the Shekinah glory that we read about in the Old Testament. And what did that represent? The presence of God. The presence of God. So, to our first point, He is present in your suffering, okay? So when we suffer, we should expect it. We should not think it's strange. We should rejoice in it. Rejoice in our suffering. And, and just expect that, you, that the Holy Spirit is going to help you during that time. He's going to minister you during that time. And you're going to be blessed during that time. He is present in our suffering. Secondly, in verse 15 and 16, a reminder... This is point number two. A reminder, suffer for Christ and not for sin. Okay? Suffer for Christ and not for sin. Verse 15. Verse 15 and 16, but first of all, verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. We don't really even need to talk about those first three words. They're obvious, right? Murder. These aren't only sins. They're crimes. I mean, obviously, we don't need to be suffer for uh, breaking the law, for being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, just evil behavior. But this last phrase, a troublesome meddler. This is one we really got to guard against. This is, a, this is describing one who, who interferes in the lives of others. Okay? Interferes in the lives of others. Get he, he or she, it's describing a person who gets in people's business that it's none of their business. It disrupts, this kind of behavior disrupts unity. It could be of a community or of a church. A troublesome meddler. So let us all beware of that and not, be, and not suffer uh, insult and reproaches and persecution for being a just a, a troublesome meddler. Let us, let us not interfere in, in the lives of others when it's not our business. Which takes us to verse 16. So a reminder. Don't suffer for evil behavior, for sin, but for Christ. Verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. The word Christian, it appears here, and in Acts 11.26 and in Acts 26.28, it's only three times you'll see Christian in the Bible and it just means a follower of Christ. A follower of Christ. 
And so Christian, the term Christian, guys, the, the disciples did not come up with that term. Okay? They did not come up with that term on their own. That was given, that was designated by the world, by their enemies, and with a stigma to it, okay? It was not a term of endearment at all. It usually was associated with hatred and persecution. It was an insult. But the church eventually adopted it and wore it proudly, and here we are today, 2,000 years later. That's, that's where that came from. In Antioch, I believe it was. But the world, the Christians, or the Christians, the disciples did not come up with that term. And it says this in verse 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. Okay? But it's to glorify God in that name. He is not to be ashamed. Now think about this, guys. When you think about your life, when I think about my life, we can all, every one of us, right? Because we're, we're, we're not fully sanctified, right? We have indwelling sin. We have an unredeemed flesh. God is sanctifying us. So every one of us can do things that would cause another person to be ashamed of us. And unfortunately, I can admit, I know I've done that. So we can do things to cause somebody to be ashamed of us. But I ask you this, what has Christ done for you and I to ever be ashamed of Him? And I think every one of us can say, ouch, on that one. That we've all been ashamed of Christ. But when we think about it, guys, what has Christ done that we would ever be ashamed of Him? Listen to this short four-line poem by a man named Joseph Grigg, an 18th century Presbyterian pastor in London. Ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend, on whom my hopes of heaven depend. No, when I, blush, when I blush, be this my shame, that I no more revere His name. Did you hear what he was saying, guys? He's saying this. The only thing you and I should ever be ashamed of is the fact that we were ever ashamed of Christ. We need to be ashamed that we're ever ashamed of Christ. It's being ashamed of our sin. But we, we need not be ashamed of Him Turn, turn your Bible to Matthew 26, guys, and we'll see Peter. We'll see Peter um, two different ways here. Great illustration for this. We're going to see. We're going to see Peter as you're turning there. Our verse in, in verse 16 it says, "If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed." And then the next line says, but is to glorify God in this name. We're going to see Peter do both. Two different instances, or a few different here. So Matthew 26, 69-75. You guys are all probably really familiar with it when he de- denied the Lord. Okay, so Read this. Verse 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. But when he had gone out the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. A little later the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even... 
the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept Peter, or he wept bitterly. So we see Peter. This is an example of Peter in this denial. He was ashamed of Christ. And and obviously you guys probably know we shouldn't be picking on Peter because we've all been there. But what we see here is, is shame turns a man into a coward. That's what we see. Shame turns a man into a coward. But praising or glorifying God makes a man bold. Now think of Peter. The, 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 the account we just read before Christ was crucified. Now we can look at Peter a little later in the book of Acts. And we see, we see bold preaching by Peter on the day of Pentecost. You don't need to turn there. Acts 2.23 This again, Peter was preaching to the Jewish leaders, right? He was preaching to the Jewish leaders. He had, he had denied the Lord by two servant girls in front of two servant girls. Now we see him being filled with the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost preaching to the very crowds that were shouting, crucify Him. And listen to Peter's the difference in his in his tone here, in his in the words he says, this man speaking about Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, I can just see Peter probably pointing his finger at him. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. What a difference in Peter! What a difference in Peter! And then and then later in Acts five, I think we mentioned this last week. Peter with the other apostles after they had been arrested by the authorities and released, it said they were rejoicing that they had been worthy to suffer shame for His name. They had been flogged and beaten. And now Peter's rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Again, we see... We see we see shame. Being ashamed of something turns it can turn a person into a coward. But we see praising or glorifying God makes a man bold. And that's what this phrase means in verse 16. It says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in that name. And so that, that phrase, to glorify God, in this context, it's, it means to praise Him. For the privilege and honor of suffering for this name. Do you realize, guys, what a privilege it is to suffer for this name? What an honor it is to suffer for this name. Because of who He is. I mean, who, it is, who is it that we're suffering for? This is not just a man. This is the one who gave His life for you. This is the one who shed His precious blood for you. This is the one who spoke. For those of you who are at our house Friday night, you remember we read through 1 Colossians? 
This is the one who spoke it all into existence. This is him coming to the earth. This is the one that he said in Matthew 28 that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. It's a privilege to suffer for this one. This is the one who is sovereign over all kings, all rulers, all authorities. This is who He is, the God-man. And and it's a privilege to suffer for Him because of what He's done. Right? Born of a virgin, lived a perfect life that you couldn't live and I couldn't live, but that God demands. He did it for us. He redeemed us with His precious blood that we read about in Peter. Bore the wrath of God that we deserve. Rose again the third day in victory. It's a privilege to suffer for Him. Even what He will do that we'll read about here in a bit, He's coming back to make all things right. He's coming back just like that Father is going to deal with those little bully boys. Christ is going to come back. And all those who harmed His people will stand before Him one day. So it's a privilege, guys. I just encourage you when you're, when you're tempted in those times. And I know what it's like to, uh, you know, maybe it's not an outwardly deny Him as, as drastic as Peter, but we all do it. We all deny Him. And so remember who He is, guys. Remember what a privilege it is. Which brings us to our next one, our next point in verse 17 and 18. So we see that Christ is present in our suffering, first of all. We're reminded that if we're going to suffer, we suffer for Him and not for sinful behaviors. Now in verse 17 and 18, what we're going to see is God's judgment. 17 and 18, God's judgment. First of all, verse 17. I'm sorry, this is... um, Yeah, yeah, we're going to look at this in verse 17 and 18, but let's look at verse 17 first of all. We're going to see that God judges His people first. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So God's judgment. First of all, two subpoints. First of all, the church. The church. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. That, that, that preposition with in the Greek really means from. Okay? It's, it's a different preposition in the Greek meaning from. So the language being this. Is that judgment has its point of departure in God's house and then goes to those who are not a part of His family. Okay? Well, maybe you'll see that a little clearer when we go on. So in other words, God judges His people, the church, and then the unbelieving world. And although there's no kind of quotation from the Old Testament here, I think there's no doubt Peter is having the idea in his mind of the language of Malachi 3, verses 1-4. through If you'll turn there, Malachi 3. It's going to be the last book in the Old Testament. Chapter 3, so it's going to be the second to the last chapter in the Old Testament. And I think you can see the parallel here, the picture that Peter is, or where he has drawn this picture from. Malachi 3, 1 through 4. 
Malachi 3, 1-4 says this, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like the fuller's soap. He will set as a smelter and purifier of silver. And He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. This is a picture of the Lord coming to His people and refining and purifying His people which is the language that we're looking at here in 1 Peter. This is God coming to His people in the temple and refining them and purifying them like silver. And so in 1 Peter, this judgment that Peter's talking about through suffering, talking about the people of God, the church, this judgment through suffering that begins with God's people purifies... Right? That, remember the word in verse 12 last week? Tests, purifies, true Christians. That's what that's a picture of in Malachi 3 verses 1 through 4. That's what Peter's connecting. Connecting it to. And so, in, in the next sub-point that we see in verse 17 and 18, is now we're going to look at God's judgment on the world. God's judgment on the world. We see in Malachi 3, 1-4, through as the same in Peter's text, that this judgment that's being referred to for the people of God is a refining. Okay, It's a purifying. It's not condemnation. It's not punishment. Because Christ already took our punishment on the cross. So it's a different kind of judgment. But now, what about the world? Okay, What about those who are not part of the household of God? What about the judgment, the punishment, in other words, of the ungodly? Turn back to Malachi. If you, if, if you, if you flipped, I should have had you stay there if you turned. But we're going to read one more verse. And we can see it. Verse, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 5. says this, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a... And, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress and wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and on those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. When the Lord comes to the temple, He refines and purifies His people. Verses 1-4. through four. But in verse 5, He judges and punishes the ungodly and the unrepentant. You guys see the picture? That Peter's drawn the same language in verse, in verse 17. Judgment, in other words, judgment is coming to this world. Judgment is coming to this world. Jesus said this, guys. If you remember in Matthew 10, Jesus said it's going to be worse for those You remember, He he told His disciples, go to the towns, go to the villages, preach the Gospel to them. He said, when they don't listen to you, shake the dust off, 
Get out of there. But he said it's going to be worse for them. Worse for who? Those who heard. Those who hear the truth clearly. Jesus said it would be worse for them who clearly heard the truth than for those whom we looked at a couple weeks ago in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the judgment we read about. That Yahweh on earth called down fire from Yahweh in heaven and destroyed those cities because they had been given over to immorality. And Jesus says, guys, if you can get your mind around that, it's going to be worse on that day for those who have a clear knowledge of the truth and harden their heart. That's a scary thing in our culture for people who sit in church week after week and hear the Word of God. You're going to be accountable to that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Speaks. Because what, what, what is Peter's question here in verse 17? He says this. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Who do not obey the gospel of God? What is that? To repent and believe. 2 Thessalonians 1 7 through 9 says this. Or 7, starting in verse 7b. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those, here's that same language, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The command from heaven is to repent and to believe. Get on your knees before Christ. Humble yourself before Christ. Bow the knee to Christ or you will on this day. He goes on in verse 9. These, right? These who do not obey the gospel these who do not obey the, the command to repent and to believe in Christ alone. It says these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. This is what the Bible says will happen to those who do not obey the Gospel of God. Verse 18, he continues the thought. Verse 18 is a quotation off of Proverbs 11.31. Verse 18, it says, And if, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? There's that question again. What will become of the godless and sinner? John Calvin says this on this verse. I really like this. This is verse 18. The meaning is that God's judgment would be dreadful against the ungodly. God's judgment would be dreadful against the ungodly. Since the way of salvation was so thorny and difficult to the elect. In other words, I believe what Calvin is saying, correctly saying, God is not interested in the comfort even in the lives of His children. That's not what God's... He's not interested in our comfort. Okay? This life is full of troubles, is what Calvin's saying, for God's people. You think about the, 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 the struggles as Christians, okay? I mean, things you're going to struggle with that you, 
that the unbeliever doesn't. You're going to battle with your flesh, right? Because you got a war going on. Read chapter 7 in Romans. There's a war. The inner man loves the, the law of God and the inward man. But you got this battle with this unredeemed flesh with indwelling sin along with the temptations of Satan tempting you through your flesh and along with outer persecutions that we're reading of. It's all a picture of what? The narrow way that Jesus says, right? Enter by the narrow gate. And it's not just a narrow gate that we enter in, but then it's a narrow path that we walk in. Just like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, right? The path's narrow. It's restricted. And so it's a battle. That's what, that's what, Calvin, uh, that's what Calvin means when he says uh, the way of salvation was so thorny and difficult to the elect. But as Calvin said, dreadful for the ungodly. That's a, that's a powerful word. Dreadful for the ungodly. It made me think of Proverbs 10.28. The hope of the righteous is gladness. Okay, The, the psalm that Dylan read, Psalm 37, do you hear how many times it said, Righteous and wicked. Righteous and wicked. Righteous and wicked. Okay, so when it says the hope of the righteous is gladness, and then it says, but the expectation of the wicked perishes. Now you guys remember, it's not saying good people versus bad people. Who are the righteous? The righteous are those who have been made righteous through Christ. The only, the only people that are righteous in God's eyes is because we've had the righteousness Credited to our account. We've been covered in the righteousness of Christ, with the righteousness of Christ. So it says, the hope of the righteous, those in Christ, by grace through faith. The hope of the righteous is gladness. Do we not have hope? Do you guys have hope today? Right? The hope that Peter talked about early on in chapter 1. The hope, the living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's a gladness. The hope of the righteous is gladness. We, we anticipate. Again, not in a morbid way, but we anticipate this life being over. We can be with our Lord. But then it says, but the expectation of the wicked perishes. The expectation of the man who is not in Christ, the man who is not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, whatever expectation they have for life and death, one day it will perish. That's that dreadful language that Calvin's talking about for the ungodly. The expectation of the wicked. The expectation of what happens after death in their idolatrous mind. It's all going to perish. On that day, it's all gone. All the material possessions gone. Money gone. Possessions gone. And whatever expectation they had after that, it's gone. It perishes. And he asked the question in verse 18, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? What will become? What will become of him? Listen to Revelation 6, 15-17. You can turn there if you'd like. But just listen to this language, guys. And, and it answers that question. It answers Peter's question. 
What will become of the godless man and the sinner? Revelation 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth... Okay, listen to this language. The kings of the earth. Okay, These are the mighty men. These are the most powerful men. The kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong. Think about... You think about these people that are, that are in high places and all the power, all the wealth, all the power to do what they want to, to the people under them. Ungodliness, pride, wealth. But then it says, and every slave and every free man. Listen to this, guys. What did they do? Hid themselves. In the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains, Can you imagine having this much dread of something where you're literally wanting to be buried under the rocks of the mountains? They said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us. This is the dread that Calvin's referring to. Fall on us. And and what are they trying to hide from? Who are they trying to hide from? Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? That day's coming. Guys, for everybody who does not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Again, whether it's at His coming or the moment your expectation perishes, you'll be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ to give an account of your life. What will become of the godless man or the the godless man and the sinner. Lastly, in verse 19, entrust your soul to your Creator. Entrust your soul to your Creator. Verse 19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. I never did give the title of the sermon, but it is suffering according to the will of God. And that comes out of verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. So again, beloved, don't be surprised in verse 12 if you're reviled for Christ, okay? Don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard. Don't think you're the only one. Don't think you're doing something wrong if you're suffering for Christ and being reviled. If you're suffering as a Christian. Okay? Don't be surprised because it's not by blind chance. It's not blind chance. No. Verse 19. It is according to the will of God that we suffer. Okay? I know I'm just emphasizing this because we need to just remember. I mean, because there's some teachings out there they. That communicates if you just be like Jesus, then everybody's going to love you. That's not what the Bible says. 
Okay? Yes, we are to be the light. We are to be salt. And yes, it's a witness to the world. But for those who are hardened in their sins, they're not always going to like it. And so it's according to God's will. This phrase, entrust your souls. Guys, it means to give it to someone for safekeeping. Give it to someone for safekeeping. Just think of valuables in your life. You know, that you were going to leave with somebody and they were going to be safe. You'd want to give them to someone who is trustworthy, right? To look over your material possessions. That's the language here. Entrust your souls. So entrust your souls, beloved, your, your life, your circumstances, and yes, your suffering to your faithful Creator. I believe I read that's the only time in the New Testament that word Creator is used. I think so. But, but, it, but it says your faithful Creator. I mean, guys, who's more faithful than Christ, right? Who's more faithful than God, our Heavenly Father? Paul Washer says this. I looked ahead, Shiloh, in our workbook that you'll be doing here in a couple weeks on on, on God's faithfulness. And Paul Washer says this. "When, When faithful is used to reference to God, it means that He is worthy of absolute trust and that His people can depend upon Him without doubt or reservation. It, it is, he says, it is important to understand that God's faithfulness is not based upon His doing everything that His people desire, but upon His doing everything that He has promised. Okay? The faithfulness of God. Entrust your souls to Him. It's the same wording that Christ used upon the cross. Into your hands I commit my spirit, I entrust. And then this just came to my mind. In chapter 2 in Peter. Yeah, chapter 2, verse 23. says, when, when While being reviled, Christ, He did not revile them or turn. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And that word just meant He entrusted the entire situation. All of His suffering at the hands of the godless men. Everything He, he was entrusting to His Father. So that's the language, guys. Be encouraged, okay? Be encouraged that you are blessed when you suffer, that Christ is present when you suffer, that the Spirit of God strengthens you during that time. He will enable you to endure, okay? So be encouraged. And then lastly, for the unbeliever, there is nothing more valuable than your soul. There's nothing more valuable than your soul. Mark 8, 36 and 37, Jesus says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? This is the one, this is the same one saying this that created the world. This is the one with all knowledge. He created this world. All of the riches that we have in this world came from his creation. He is Lord over all, omniscient. The book of Proverbs Proverbs describes Him as wisdom. This is God in the flesh. And He says, what is it going to profit a man if you could gain the whole world? Even if you could, if you could gain 
all of the wealth, all of the status, all of the pleasure, all of the material possessions, all of the comfort, what would it profit a man if he could gain the whole world and then forfeit a soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What sin, what sin is so important to you that you'd be willing to exchange the temporary pleasures for sin, the temporary status in this life for your very soul? Those things are temporal. Those things will come to an end. Those things will perish. Those things are temporary. Your soul is that which endures goes on, will be in eternity. You're going to die. I appreciate that that part of that sermon Juan put on group me the other day. I think it was in the men's group. Paul Washer. And he was talking to he was talking to believers, just not wasting your life. You're going to die. You're going to die. Do you realize that? You're going to die. Everything you have is going to be gone. And so we're not to waste our life. But for the unbeliever, you're going to die. Everything will be stripped from you on that day. Your expectation will perish. Don't lose your soul. But entrust it to Jesus. They gave Him the name Jesus for He will save His people from their sins. He is a Savior. He is the only Savior that this world has. Don't lose your soul. Entrust your soul to Jesus. Believe in Christ, the simple Gospel message, that He can forgive all of your sin and He can give you a new heart. He can forgive your sin. He can give you new life. Make you brand new on the inside. You don't have to have a certain amount of money. You don't have to perform good works. You just simply surrender to Him. You come to Him by faith and repentance and believe the message of Christ that He died for your sins, that He went into the grave, and that He rose again, providing victory over death, satisfying God's justice, And now He bids you to come. Come. Come to Him. Come to Me, He says, and I will give you rest. Would you pray with Me? Father, Lord, Your words are sobering for the ungodly, the future of the ungodly who refuse to repent. So Father, I pray for all of those in our lives, for any who may be here today who's never been born again, for any who would hear this message, Lord, I pray that You would break our hearts. And I pray by the power of Your Spirit that, Father, You would draw those people to Yourself. Your Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so, Father, we trust that and we trust the power of Your Holy Spirit. Father, I thank You for Your Word that so clearly tells us
that as Christians we should expect suffering. And that it's not a strange thing. That it's common to believers. That we should rejoice in it. That we should continue rejoicing as we see that day when you're going to appear. When we're going to see you face to face. And then our rejoicing will go into great exaltation. Leaping for joy. Father, I pray for those who do not know You, Lord. I so desperately desire that, that they would know You in that saving way. So Father, we just thank You for Your Gospel, Lord. pray that You would be with us the rest of the day in our, in our, in our uh, small groups. God, we love You so much. Thank You for first loving us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.